What does language mean to you? Are words just arbitrary sounds that we've assigned meaning? When does language uplift us? And similarly, when does language shun us? Welcome back to The Daily Brew. I'm Chloe Mendoza. Today, we'll be hearing a special reading of In the Gray by The Grind co-managing editor Kyla Figueroa. Stay tuned for a special note at the end of the episode. Kyla talks about cultural imposter syndrome, language, and cultural disconnection. When I was about five and my parents signed me and my siblings up for the local soccer league, I told them I wanted to be goalie. To me, a child filled with romantic fantasies, I would be a star, the only person on the field who could touch the ball with their hands, who dived and jumped and blocked soccer balls going at monstrous speed, who saved the day by catching a game-deciding penalty kick. My father, a soccer player in his prime, whose career was ended by a torn NCL, decided I needed intense and vigorous training. And what better way to get it than in the comfort of my own backyard, with the audience of my childhood cat, Mimi, and a woodpecker on a nearby telephone pole, hacking away with a peck, peck, every time we went outside. I learned how to hold and grab the ball, how to punt it once I caught it, how to jump high and punch the ball, where to stand and what to do during a corner kick, where I could and couldn't grab the ball, how to assert myself, how to act during a one-on-one, and how to block a faded penalty. My father insisted that diving, getting dirty, and not being afraid of bruises and grass stains were essential for any goalie, so much so that the majority of the Figueroa School of Goalie Excellence consisted of me throwing myself on the ground for hours. He would stand behind me and wrap his hands around my little wrists and move me within the confines of a homemade goalie box. He showed me how the space was mine and how I could be successful with the right moves. Even after hours when my dad's age caught up to him and he'd retreat inside, I would remain until sunset and practice diving, sometimes even matching the rhythm of the peck peck. I eventually played soccer for my tia, who coached an under-six co-ed team in La Rosita Jr. I was finally living out my little dreams, well, for the most part, and my jersey, which was a long-sleeved and a different color from the other players with my last name and the number one printed on the back. That jersey, playing a sport I loved and spending time with my family, were the main perks. I quickly learned, however, that being goalie wasn't all glory. In fact, I was an honorary scapegoat. Kids can be mean, and my teammates were no exception to the trend. Their defensive errors they were pinned on me, and I was at fault even if they blocked my view of the field or set up a ball perfectly for the opposing striker. With every game we lost, I got quite a bit of constructive criticism. Why didn't you block that shot? And with every good game, I barely got a good job. The team's love went to the forwards, the players who actually scored our goals. And like all athletes, I had bad days. Those were the worst. Not only were they their losses, but these games seemed to nullify all the work I had done in my backyard. While my parents were supportive, taking me to every game and cheering on my successes, I felt there was a raging disappointment in their eyes when I couldn't perform up to the standards of those before my time. I was usually met with a scolding after a game, some anger and some tough advice, but all I could hear was my own voice bouncing off the walls inside my head. I wasn't good enough. And when I'd go home and head straight to the bathroom to wash the sweat and dirt off my face, I didn't look at myself in the mirror. I quit goalie at the age seven. I turned to the field as a defender and eventually a midfielder, both positions where I couldn't use my hands and play like the rest of the team. 
I quit the sport altogether at age 10 and moved on. I at last accepted my childhood defeat. Language, to me at least, is the greatest bridge between people. No algorithm, code, or number can outdo a simple letter, word, and sentence. Prose and poetry, my art forms reign supreme. English major here. I guess there's the bias, but I won't back down. With language, you can communicate loves, anxieties, your deepest, darkest secrets within the putrid pits of the mind, and your aspirations that seem tangible, straight out of fantasy land from childhood picture books. And of course, without language, human interaction would not be probable. Culture is the congregation of people, their common identity would cease to exist. Thus, language is a vehicle for everyday life. And that's true no matter how mundane or worthwhile that may be, that may be for an individual. Stockton, California, my hometown, is America's most diverse yet scarred city, home to a large Latino majority Mexican immigration population. Plenty of soccer there meant most of my teammates were of the same racial background. Referees, players, and coaches communicated for substitutes and travels in Spanish, the universal language, and the league. Parents, within, within their rowdiness and rage about a bunch of children kicking around a ball, argued and cussed in Spanish. Two sides brawling. In Spanish, goal is goal, which is the one. Regalazo for the commentators spectating the Mexico games on Univision. Penalty is penal, essentially another cognate. Ball is pelota, referee is arbitrary. Goalkeeper is portero. I was a portera. Spanish is a gender language. My dad said something along those lines, in less sociological terms, when I asked for the definitions of those words, usually on the way home from practice or a Saturday game. Spanish was practically innate for him. The rules have been ingrained into his life since birth, like genes or physical traits. What comes so naturally is sometimes so hard to explain. The Spanish alphabet and vocabulary words required no further details. Simple things require simple explanations. When I asked about con conjugations, slang, or just the common why, his response was less complicated than it should have been. That's just how it is. It just makes sense. It never made sense to me. Here's my hypothesis. If language is a vehicle, then for me, Spanish is like my friend's car on the third level over parking garage. It works when needed. It's there, it exists somewhat, not without its problems, such as its brakes going out in the middle of summer quarter or its solid month of rattling every time the driver turned. For years, I can never articulate this problem. Spanish, up until high school, was the simple words and phrases picked up from family gatherings and Dora the Explorer. My first language was English. Anything too fast or too complicated needed to be broken down, translated, or spoken at 0 0.50 speed. Otherwise, it would go in one ear and out the other. I went and watched a video on YouTube that showed how long English speakers hear English. Every word felt familiar, like I should have understood them. But there was nothing but incoherence. Nothing stuck. I couldn't find anything familiar, find myself within what was being spoken. There was no connection. Stockton was a sea of Mexican immigrants, especially on the east side where my elementary school was located. Being biracial and inheriting my most prominent traits from my white mother, I stood out. This wasn't oppressive by any means. In fact, it was familiar. It was like going to a school with which my cousins from my dad's side of family. The same amount, too, since my dad and his 12 siblings gave me 40 to 60 playdates across a wider age range. The people at school were just an extension of that. They played similar games at home, the same jump rope and double dutch skittering on the cement, 
The same clearance shoes grazing across a bark that got trapped in your shoes, its flakes in random places. The same little legs pounding cement, playing basketball, or running away from whoever was it. They even played soccer at school with goalies, posts too big for children under five feet, and not adorned with nets. We had to chase the ball in the same way my cousins and I ventured into the T-Bus once we kicked the ball over the fence. Yet, it was simultaneously different. There was a different game. One that wasn't necessary for my cousins because we were family. My cousins knew my ancestry and heritage because it was something we shared. They knew my dad, their deal, and even by the, you know, for some. They might not have had my problem, but they knew me. Kids at school, it was always the same question for me and my brothers. Why don't you know Spanish? They never understood in the same way that I never knew how to answer. For them, Spanish was innate. It was ingrained in them. For me, it wasn't. And I didn't have other stuff to prove it. I didn't have a career in folklorico or visit Michoacan or any place in Mexico for months at a time. They just had to take me at my word. I had to believe myself, too. One day, my mother, who normally picked us up parking behind and taking a path parallel to the bus lane, was unable to. My dad took a late lunch to take us home on the way from a fast food restaurant. One of my brother's friends was waiting with him, a child with similar questions as the rest. The boy quizzed my father when he arrived, speaking to him in Spanish. My father, to no surprise, responded, Shocker. My dad had something we did not. The only question was why. Simple things required simple answers. This one, well, at the surface was simple, was more complex. That's just how it is, was all we could give. Dinner would always happen at the big wooden table for five, no matter if we had a soccer game, school, or work. At the biracial family dinner table, what we ate depended on who was cooking. It depended on which of my parents' turn it was to prepare and marinate the meat, cut vegetables, and help the other put food in front of the picky children. Sometimes it was roast, diced potatoes, and carrots mixed in with a broth of shredded beef, sopa, or pizza, pizza, recognate, or miscellaneous pasta, marinara sauce, salsa, marinara, and meatballs, albondigas, with a side of Caesar salad, and salada. Others consisted of chile verde with frioles and arroz, enchiladas on special nights. Tortillas were a staple for all meals, flour or corn, maize, heated on the comal. I, having grown up in Stockton, know a lot about Mexican food. I know more foods than words from the Spanish language, and I continue to learn about more. The taste, the flavor, seasoning, and spice, all within a concoction of meat, peppers, and sauces. Everything about Mexican food was familiar. I grew up with these foods. One day when I was old enough and my parents would let me touch the stove, I would learn recipes from both sides. I would practice creating the meals, rinse, and repeat in the same way my parents learned from theirs. It was lineage, something other than genes and hand-me-downs that was passed down from generation to generation. Eventually, the student becomes a teacher. I, one day, when I learned all the recipes, would pass them down to my children. I often think about my paternal grandparents, especially when I sit at a big wooden table, each member at their assigned seat, and ask my parents the same questions I was asked at school. Why didn't you teach me Spanish? I think about how different we are, not only in age. They came to the United States half a century ago, really only knowing Spanish and learning droplets of English to pass their citizenship test. I was born with citizenship, with Stockton being the only place I could call home, and California the only place I really knew. English was my first language. I would only learn Spanish too many years later, and not from my family. That's just how it is. 
As I would pick up my food, sauce, and rice coming together as one, I think about how I could never really communicate with my grandparents, how I could never truly be engaged. I think about how I can never really communicate with my grandparents, how I can never truly be ingrained into their culture. Despite any effort to pass on the food, there would be no culture, no language behind it. Something got lost between generations along man-made borders between each country. The longer we are here, the more lineage expands on this land, the more is lost. Why? We were at a loss for words, Spanish or English. We had no answers, explanations were unclear. They're lost in the gray. They say good things come in threes. What about pairs? Is it still an angel number if there's only two of the same number? 1111 would concur. And double is considered a good rule in Yahtzee. Anal analogies are the foundations for metaphors and similes. In the culture of Yoruba, a West African ethnic group, Twins are considered gifts from God, parents, grandparents, and every generation before. The people that love and care for you and make you, you, go from strangers to living their lives together as pairs. We discuss how Hamlet and Polonius were two contradictory characters, a rigid contrast in how they presented each other to the kingdom. One was truthful, yet perceived as insane. The other was a performer, fitting the mold of society. Despite their tragic ends, each fit somewhere in the story as a member one side, secure in their role. However, the characters both took part in the thematic phenomenon of performance versus being truthful. What happens if you don't fit into one side? What if you exist as both characters? Was their inability to choose the unknown making their questions unanswerable, the reason the play ended the way it did? In class, I also learned what a paradox was, two contradictory sides that are able to exist truthfully together. What a paradox, what a paradox creates is ambiguity. What it creates it for a person is disconnection if they are immersed in only one side. The result of this combination is great. Despite being told both are valid, the subject feels that their complementary and simultaneous existence is invalid. There's no security in this unknown feeling of gray. It's gotten better. When I was younger, I couldn't define racial imposter syndrome. I would just dissolve into a puddle of tears if I tried to articulate a problem I had no words for. Only guilt would show. Everyone else seemed so secure in their community, while well, I just wondered what I did wrong. I'd practice how I'd greet my grandfather and some of the words when talking, even though I knew it was a simple como estas and bien. The words didn't feel, the words didn't feel right in my mouth. I'd play parties with Spanish music. I'd be so embarrassed to hear words I didn't even understand and everyone else did. My face would turn red and I'd run to join my cousins as far away as possible from the stereo to avoid my guilt of not knowing. Why, 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 why? I can verbalize it now. Face the music and hell, write this entire essay, but without the language that connects my community, while well, I just really guarantee I don't feel secure existing in those spaces. Despite any newfound validation I connected with at Stanford, where I have found students with similar experiences, the problem persists. I continue to exist somewhere in the gray. My love for soccer resurfaced in high school. When I tried out for and made the JV soccer team, it had been years since I played and I was eventually getting a fresh start. It had been years since I played and I was essentially getting a fresh start. However, that meant proving myself once more, working my way from starting on the bench for the majority of my freshman year to playing summer league to starting as a midfielder for my sophomore year. When I started JV, 
equipped with more than basic skills, including diving and punting practice that had stuck and was handy for my few appearances as a goalie. One thing I never learned from training back then was how to make the ball hurt less when it slams into your stomach and sucks all the air out of your lungs. As a midfielder, that happened a lot on the field, coming suddenly and unexpectedly. A kick took a split second and boom, you were on the ground, reeling and gasping for air. And when I was younger, so many timeouts were called just to attend to children who got the wind knocked out of them, myself one of the many victims. My high school coach had the remedy, sit-ups. Sit-ups tone your core and create a firm wall that delays the pain from a ball to the gut. Sometimes, due to the hundred our coach would make us do after every practice, I wouldn't be... I wouldn't even be affected by these once tragic blows. It was something new that helped me become a better player and made me feel more secure on the field without worry that I would have to stop an entire game just to catch my breath. I couldn't go back to the past and change when I when the I couldn't I can't go back to the past and change when the ball did hurt, but with the little things that I picked up on a new team, I can move forward. I can't go back and fix myself. I can't go back and become fluent in Spanish, giving me the great connector to this language and doing all the insecurity I've internalized. I'll never stop this crisis, the effect of disconnection. It's too deeply rooted. But I can try to learn new things, pick up and scrounge for any pieces of my culture I feel secure taking and in turn restore confidence in myself. Ceaselessly, I try to go on, reaching for any anchor I can grasp as I float in the pool of ambiguity that is my identity. Hi, my name's Kyla. I am the Grind Managing Editor. You just listened to Somewhere in the Gray, which is a nonfiction, creative, non creative nonfiction writing piece. Um, essentially, you can't tell I'm an identity crisis. Just kidding. Am I? No. But, yeah. I guess I wrote this article last quarter... Um, it's been something I've been writing, wanting to write for the daily for quite a while. It's just like I never really had the words. Then one time, I got the idea at the beginning of the last quarter of like how I wanted to frame it. Um, essentially, I was really mad at a friend one time, and I had a talk with this friend, and um, in that we had like a long, a long conversation after we settled our the issue, and everything was Gucci. We just had a really long conversation afterwards, and. During it, he had said, we were just talking about, like, our, like, past experiences and just, like, I don't know, a bunch of, like, cool things that, like, had happened in your life and we're just, like, learning new things about each other. And my friend was sharing to me, like, how he had played soccer and I had brought up my experiences playing soccer. And I think the first image that popped into my mind, because we were both talking about, like, our parents and how, like, they would both get mad at games and just, like, act up. One of the first images, though, was, like, me, like, wanting to, like, like, talking about, like, how, oh, I played soccer in, like, the backyard. Like, my training came from my dad, who, yeah, he tore his MCL when he was, um, in, he played soccer for a long time, though, and it was, like, a serious thing. But he tore his MCL and wasn't able to play afterwards. He had trained me in the backyard. Like, the image I remember is, like, him, like, taking, like, my wrists, like, making me, like, jump places and, like, like, I don't know. It was just, like, him making me, like, not scared to, like, go on the floor because goalies need to dive and 
like do it and like jump for the ball and like you're not a good goalie if you don't know how to move and like make the thing your like space like have like confidence and security and like space and just like talking about that and just like how like my relationship with like, soccer my friend was like you should write about that because as one knows I'm a writer. I like writing things. That's how I get my inspiration out. Or that's how I get my ideas out into the world. And so I was like, yeah, I would like to do that. So um, after a while, I just kept thinking about like soccer and just like my relationship with soccer. And not only that, but just like my relationship to soccer in terms of like my identity, in terms of like being Mexican and like also seeing like how like it was obviously Growing up in Stockton, majority people that played soccer in the league I was in were Hispanic. It was, like, talking about, like, how influenced, like, that space was by, like, a certain culture. And then, like, how sometimes I felt very left out. Which then just got me spiraling and thinking about, like, everything of, like, how I felt, like, disconnected from my culture. Even though I that was basically, like, the space I grew up in. Because I, again, like, could not, like, I, again, like, people just, like, question, like, why don't you know Spanish and blah, 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 blah. And also just like me not looking, appearing on the, at the first glance, glance as a person of color. And I don't know. I think thinking of that um, got me to write this article and just frame it around me, learning how to move on despite like insecurity and using soccer and also my writing as a way to like bring my feelings feelings like I, I once not didn't have words for it's so hard to explain things when you don't have words for them and like once you have words I think at least even images like all these moments um yeah and I guess the hardest part of this article was that um at first I tried to take like an explanation approach like I um was just explaining racial imposter syndrome explaining just like going very factual and I didn't like that like I was like what am I doing like I'm just talking to the audience I'm not like really showing them anything and I read um a series of essays by Ocean Wong who published them in the New Yorker my friend the same friend I was also mad at but then now I'm not mad at and had a conversation with they had sent me Ocean Wong articles and um or an Ocean Wong like short story because I'm a really big Ocean Vlog fan. And um, basically the essay was in like a serial format. In which there's like different anecdotes. And like moments he captured through like essays. The essay, the creative nonfiction essay format. And I really liked the whole like serial. Like little like separation. So like I framed it. Started with soccer. But then like actually went into moments about like my identity. Rather than just like talking. It was more like a show don't tell. And I think that worked best. And I like also just like from writing this, I've been writing more articles and just like also just like stories and anecdotes in the moment image rather than the whole, this is what racial imposter syndrome is. So I think like looking back at it, I'd like to thank that friend for helping that article come to life. And shout out to Stockton. I think this article, I'm glad it came out in the way it did. I think as a writer, you always like look back and you're just like, this sucks. But I think this is one of the few pieces I've written. I'm just like, this doesn't suck. And I'm happy 
that I was able to find the words for something I used to not be able to explain. Yeah, that's about it. Tee. Special thanks to Kyla Figueroa for sharing her story in the gray with the Daily Brew. I'm Chloe Mendoza, producer of this episode and managing editor of podcasts for Volume 261. For more podcasts by the Stanford Daily, visit stanforddaily.com slash category slash podcasts.